Will I still have a house in a month? Home is love. Affordable housing really fills a need. Home is hope. You're always grateful to have a roof over your head. Eden Housing is that hope. Welcome to the Affordable Housing Podcast, brought to you by Eden Housing. Affordable homes used to be the hallmark of American prosperity. Now the housing arena is where we can best see extreme inequity, a huge gap between the haves and have-nots. Hi, I'm Joanne Green, and on this episode of the Affordable Housing Podcast, brought to you by Eden Housing, we'll hear from Connor Doherty, author of Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. Connor grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and currently lives in Oakland. He spent a decade in New York covering housing and the economy for the Wall Street Journal and now covers housing economics for the New York Times. Connor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You bet. Connor, tell us how you became so interested in housing. Well, as my agent said to me once, everyone has parents in a house. Uh, so um, we're all interested in housing, right? Uh, but um, I started covering housing for the Wall Street Journal uh, many years ago. And I guess at first I sort of saw it as a just a piece of the economy. And then during the Great Recession, uh, obviously it became this uh, kind of focal point of the entire recession. But what was surprising to me was even as the Great Recession was full of empty images of, or sorry, images of uh, empty subdivisions and all this, there was still uh, a kind of a housing shortage in San Francisco and other really prosperous kind of fast growing cities like Seattle, New York, and even smaller places like Minneapolis, Nashville. So I guess I thought that that was interesting that we had this kind of Initially, I got interested in it because I thought it was sort of intriguing that we had this uh, excess of empty homes in one part, uh, you know, kind of the more exurban homes, wh while having a shortage in another part. And that, that seemed sort of interesting to me. Uh, you know, you, when you cover the economy, you start to kind of take for granted that if there's sufficient profit motive to do something, uh, it will just kind of work itself out. But, you know, here this shortage had persisted. And, you know, despite great uh, desire on the parts of developers and others to 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 build that kind of housing, you know, denser housing in cities. So I just thought, I guess I, originally I just thought that's kind of interesting. Uh, and then, of course, as I, you know, as frequently happens, I kind of unpeeled it and found that there's this, you know, wonderful political story about, you know, young activists versus kind of uh, older homeowners uh, kind of within that. And it was this kind of generational battle that in some fashion or form had been going on for 40 years. So I guess it kind of, like I said, it just kind of began as this kind of question, uh, how can this, this really intense shortage of homes in uh, you know, prosperous cities persist despite great desire for people to be there, great desire to build. Uh, and, and then it just, you know, you just kind of peel it away one little piece at a time. It's interesting that you use um, this phrase, peeling away the layers. I immediately thought of an onion, which makes me cry, which <laughs> has a very strong smell. <laughs> the analogy is good. So, Connor, your book, Golden Gate, Fighting for Housing in America, zeroes in on San Francisco's housing battles. San Francisco had about 800,000 people in 1950, <laughs> which is roughly the same number of people who live in the city today. So how can that be? Why hasn't the population grown? It's grown a little. I think it's almost 900 now. Um, so let me just say, 
I, one thing I probably should have been a little bit more clear of in the book, I, I use the term city and metro area almost interchangeably. Um, I don't, I think when you're thinking about the economy and housing, the, uh, it's kind of, the politics are very local, right? But the region works as a unit, whether, whether it works politically or not, uh, and usually the case is not, people do not really move to San Francisco. Some people do, but people move to the Bay Area and they make their housing choices based on that kind of region-wide, uh, at that region-wide analysis. Right? Or they move to San Francisco and then they realize, oh, there's no summer. So then they move out. Yeah, I mean, I just meant on the whole, people are making choices. Some people are absolutely determined to live in the city of San Francisco and they pay some sacrifice for that, you know, in terms of space and other things. Other people want to live very, you know, a lot further out. And I guess what um, what was fascinating, and so so th that that is how people treat the region. That is how businesses treat the region. Uh, it is not how our politics treats the region. And so I guess I thought that was sort of I guess um, that was what the kind of the story is, you know, meaning that they're they're adding a ton of jobs in the Bay Area. They're um, adding all, all sorts of uh, all sorts of population in the Bay Area. But the housing, whether it's in San Francisco or Oakland, although Oakland has actually done fairly well, but Silicon Valley has not kept the pace. And I guess what I found fascinating about that is that this, this kind of like, like I said, this, this dichotomy where the region is growing a bunch, they're adding office buildings, they're adding jobs, they're adding all sorts of employment and traffic and, and, and they're even pulling in people from uh, other regions. So, you know, something like 100,000 people uh, commute into the Bay Area every day from way outside the region. But the housing locally, whether it's, you know, some city like Cupertino or Mountain View or Palo Alto uh, or, or San Francisco isn't keeping a pace. And so I guess I thought it was sort of fascinating how the region is doing one thing, adding a bunch of jobs, adding a bunch of people, while cities are doing another thing, which is, you know, sort of making it as difficult as possible to build housing. Why and, is that? And, well, I think cities think provincially, you know, if you're a Cupertino, you think that you live in this. I think that we have a, um, I think we have a sort of like a delusion between how we actually live and how we think we live. So you think a city like Cupertino, which a lot of people know is the um, headquarters of Apple. This is a relatively small town with about 60,000 people and they, you know, guard their kind of what they consider kind of a smaller town suburban character very fiercely, but it's not really a small town. It's a, it's a, a, a you know, there's this artificial ring calling it a city within six with 60,000 people in it, but it's actually sitting in the middle of this mega region. that has uh, one of the most valuable companies in the history of time sitting in the middle of it. It has this giant headquarters for Apple, uh, you know, this, this kind of iconic now spaceship um, office building that it, it looks like a giant donut that, you know, tens of thousands of people go to work in every day. And so that, that kind of shows you this paradox where, you know, you have these kind of smaller single family home neighborhoods that people think uh, are appropriate for this for what they consider a relatively small city. And yet at the same time, this relatively small city sits in the middle of this giant region and tens of thousands of people commute in there every day. And they, they don't really regard it as a city. They regard it as one little piece 
of this larger region. And so the way that we legislate housing at this very small neighborhood level has very little to do with how our economy is operating, which is at this like large region-wide level. So I, I, it's kind of fascinating to me that our national house, and you could just multiply this, right? This is not just the Bay Area. You could multiply this through, um, through the state. California has very, uh, does not build anywhere near as much housing as it should. And so I think what's fascinating to me is for all the talk we have about, you know, the president or um, you know, federal housing policy or whatever, it feels like how much housing we build, where, and how much it costs is like by and large determined by a lot of these kind of, by, by these tiny city councils. This really fundamental question of shelter in America is determined by by a, you know, a thousand or a hundred thousand or a million city councils, not by, um, not by some, you know, state or federal body. And I just, I guess I kind of thought that was interesting because it's led to this, what, what they call a collective action problem where everybody knows they need to do something, but everybody is counting on someone else to do it. Connor, you talk a lot about the struggle between the NIMBYs and the YIMBYs in your book. Folks who say, not in my backyard to affordable housing and those who understand the need and say, yes, in my backyard. Tell us where and how those battles have played out. So what I really wanted to do with this book was tell a story of characters. You know, housing policy can get very dry and it can devolve into this alphabet soup. And so when I originally, you know, going back way back when, when I originally had this idea about, isn't it interesting that we don't build enough housing despite a lot of people wanting it or, need, or, or, or apparently needing it, when I first became interested in this idea that we don't build enough housing, uh, one of the, the things that I found kind of lacking was that there wasn't really a constituency pushing for people to build housing, except for, of course, like developers, right? Uh, and I, I thought that was in and of itself kind of interesting. Like if there's really such a big problem with something as fundamental as housing, why is there no constituency for it? So this led me to kind of go looking for something. And right at that time, this very nascent Yimby Yes in My Backyard movement had started to pop up in San Francisco. So I ended up doing a story for the New York Times about this woman, Sonia Trauss, who uh, had started showing up to board of supervisors meetings in the in in San Francisco and traveling to other parts of the bay area to you know rabble rouse at city council meetings and i thought it was fascinating here was this person who was you know in her mid 30s she was renting uh, and she was sort of out there kind of saying oh we should build more housing whether it's affordable housing or market rate housing we should just build a lot more housing because we don't have enough of it and she would get countered by typically older uh, homeowners who were uh, who were very worried about you know their property values and shadows and neighborhood character and stuff like that, uh, and then this got significantly more complicated. But in any case, uh, you know she she would tr she would tend to travel around the Bay Area and sort of try to be the voice of housing consumers, if you will. What's fascinating to me, I guess, is how it plays out is so similar everywhere. Um, after I met Sonia and wrote this story about her, I ended up traveling to Boulder, Colorado for what at the time was the first uh, annual YIMBY conference. And there was people from all over the country, you know, Boulder, Seattle, uh, Boston, Minneapolis, um, 
you know, pretty much Austin, Seattle, uh, or maybe I already said Seattle, but all these different cities around the country had started to kind of foment these little quote unquote yimby yes in my backyard groups. And they were almost universally kind of young professional type people. And, and the people who were sort of fighting them tended to be um, two groups. One was kind of like anti-gentrification groups that were very worried about uh, uh, kind of luxury apartment buildings going to their neighborhoods. And then also these kind of like more low density type neighborhoods that were worried about traffic, shadows, stuff like that. What was interesting is that it played out that way everywhere. And there's kind of a nexus between environmental groups like the Sierra Club and the kind of older homeowner group. So I guess how it plays out is one group of people wants to build more housing and higher density housing. And the other group is uh, sort of insistent uh, that they not build that housing there because it should go somewhere else. Hence the term, not in my backyard. Who's winning? Who's winning at this point in courts and also on, on the ballot? It's hard to say that, that, that nimbyism isn't winning because nimbyism is sort of like, you know, the water, right? It's just, it's the air we breathe in America. I mean, you can go anywhere uh, in America and this kind of, you know, the, the kind of classic, neighborhood activist who doesn't want building near them is like, that's like the, the predominant state of things. And this is, this has no politics to it. I mean, you could go to an exclusive uh, neighborhood of Texas or of Dallas where people profess to be against the government and regulation, and they will be all for any regulation that uh, uh, prevents someone from building uh, higher density housing near them. And flip side, you could go to uh, a neighborhood of San Francisco uh, where people profess to be, um, you know, so liberal and open to opportunities for all. And they will fight vociferously if you try to put in a lower income development near them. So what I think is so fascinating about NIMBYism is that there is no politics to it. There's plenty of politics to it, but there's no classic partisanship to it. Well, it's interesting because Californians generally support local bond measures to build new affordable homes, right? Uh, so taxing yourself for something and actually building it are two separate things. Right. right that's so. what I was going to say. In theory, yes. we like the idea, but when it comes to developments that are actually proposed in local neighborhoods, the very same people aren't so supportive. Totally. And I guess at some level, I think that's why I found housing to be such an interesting window into our, uh, our politics generally. If you go and you say, I want to tax myself so that we have better schools and more equitable tax structure and you know all these things that will make life easier for people who are less advantaged and poorer, people will support those things, right? But then you ask them, like, would you be okay with somebody building a higher density apartment building near your house so that they could be in your school district? Would you be um, in support of uh, mass transit you know, near your neighborhood so that they can, so that, so that um, people who might be lower income in your neighborhood can get around more easily, right? And people sort of react fiercely to that. I remember I saw some sign once that said something, it's like some cliche money is the easiest time-saving tool or something like that. I feel like money is also this like political tool where it's like we, we declare our intent to be for something through taxes, but when you actually ask somebody to sacrifice something personally, uh, they they may not be so um, some so open to it. And I and I, and that's that's what I like. If you're not willing to live with something, 
if you're not willing to make some kind of personal sacrifice um, to make your kid's school more equitable, to make your neighborhood more welcoming, are you really for it? And I think housing kind of shows like people like aren't as much for things as they as they claim to be. And that's why I guess I found it um, to be such a fundamentally like deep topic because it uh, it reveals who we really are. According to HUD, the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, a family of four in San Francisco earning $87,000 a year is now considered very low income. Now, that completely shocked me. Is that is that a direct result of housing policies? Yes. Plain and simple, yes. Now, I want to discourage us from thinking of the actual city of San Francisco, this 46-square-mile uh, relatively small city. It has a big name, but it's not like, I mean, San Francisco City Board of Supervisors, they represent like, I don't know, 70,000 people or something. It's like not that big of a place, right? I don't think we should over fixate on one place. But the same point you made still stands, right? Like, can somebody who is lower income or even middle class live in a comfortable, safe place anywhere near where they work in the Bay Area? And the answer is like, no. But is there space like in the entire Bay Area that we could accommodate the number of jobs we have? Like totally. Uh, so so in the Bay Area, I think those same numbers you just laid out are pretty much, um, you know, they're, they're probably less severe than the city of San Francisco, but they're still pretty severe. Why don't we just actually broaden it even more to California? This, you know, giant place, 40 million people with three, you know, huge metro areas. California has some of the highest wages in the nation because we have all these high paying industries like tech and, and uh, entertainment and even blue collar jobs like at the port um, in Los Angeles, they pay pretty well. Um, so we have really high wages in California and yet we have um, and very low unemployment until coronavirus. Um, and, and yet we also have, uh, you know, again, before coronavirus, the, the country's highest uh, poverty rate when you adjust for housing costs. So if you think about it, that poverty is like manufactured poverty. It's poverty that we in this state have created through inept housing policy. It's, um, it's, poli it's poverty that is essentially a state choice um, rather than, you know, poverty that has to do with these like more entrenched issues like educational opportunities and, you know, income disparities and uh, other things that, you know, the state has like maybe less control over. Uh, uh, you know, because the state has like close to absolute control over how housing policy uh, and, you know, much less control over, uh, you know, the sort of like trajectory of the global economy. So, um, yes. So so I guess my answer is, you know, while we shouldn't fix it on San Francisco or any one kind of small geography, we can very definitively say over this very broad area of the state of California, we have made more poverty than we should have through bad housing policy. And then came coronavirus. So now we've got so many people out of work. Yes. And people struggling to pay rent. How far is that $1,200 stimulus check going to go? Uh, not very far. So for the time being, you know, people have elevated um, unemployment checks and stuff like that. But look, bottom line is this. Before coronavirus hit nationally, we had, um, I think, uh, about 25 million people, uh, about a quarter of tenants, 
paid more than half their income on rent. So that was people were struggling to make the rent even before the um, they started losing jobs and income uh, and hours and all that. So we had this you know huge housing problem uh, long before this hit, and so this is only going to make it worse. And one of the things I found so fascinating about how this has played out is people have a tendency to dig into their particular positions, right? You've seen a lot of quote unquote NIMBY groups say, oh, this just shows you the density is bad because people being closer together, you know, helps spread the pandemic. And then you see quote unquote NIMBY groups saying, well, that's actually not the case. Crowded housing, uh, and by the way, there is evidence to back this up that, you know, crowded housing is actually much more uh, unsafe than say density. I mean, if you have 10 people living in a three bedroom house, a flu is more likely to spread there than if you have, say, 30 people living in a uh, 15 unit building. But whatever one thinks about that, I think what's fascinating to me is the way coronavirus just kind of digs everybody into their positions. It's almost like ever since I published this book, like everything changed and nothing changed. Uh, obviously, the situation changed, but how people approach it and the particular positions they take like did not change like at all. I want to ask you about a new study by the California Housing Consortium. They highlight the potential for widespread defaults on affordable housing properties unless a major new multi-billion dollar rent payment assistance efforts passed. Projections are now showing that up to 50 percent of rents may not be paid, which could result, of course, in foreclosure of hundreds of thousands of affordable homes. Do you think Californians have the willpower to do something about that? Politically. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I really don't know. Do they think they do? Yes, of course they do. But you know what? The last primary, and this is before coronavirus, Californians shot down a ton of new bond measures. You know, you, you were saying before that they voted for a lot of new bond measures, and that's true. But in the last election, they did not. One of the things that people cited in the exit polls is that there, even people who are relatively well off, they have high bills. There's a ton of people who've bought housing recently and really stretched themselves to buy it. There are also people who feel like they've contributed a lot towards taxes and, and the housing problem only gets worse, specifically around homelessness. So I think that one of the things that we're only now starting to realize is that paradoxically, the worse the housing problem gets, the le less willing people are to try and tax themselves to solve it because they are paying such high housing costs themselves. I mean, if you think about it, right? Like if you have a really, really high, uh, no matter how high your income is, if you were spending a disproportionate amount of that income on your monthly mortgage or rent bill, are you going to be as willing to increase your taxes? You might not be. So right. we've actually dug ourselves into this really bad situation where we've made housing costs so high that voters are now less willing to do things about it because they themselves ha have really high bills. Um, and, and by the way, I say this delicately, but this is also why it sort of shows market rate housing has to kind of be part of the mix. Yes, we need a ton more affordable housing. Yes, we need to do something for tenants. But unless you have more people, kind of higher income people who, who are going to own homes and disproportionately vote, unless those people feel like there's options for them too, they as we've already seen, they might start becoming less generous about these affordable housing programs because they, their own housing costs are high. 
It's a really good point. Last question, Connor. It's been pretty quiet in Sacramento lately on the housing front. Uh, before COVID, which I now call BC, um, this was supposed to be the year of housing production. So what's your assessment? Will the state be able to do something big to make housing more affordable this year, or is that just going to have to wait? As I was saying earlier in the interview, NIMBYism is almost like this broad sociology we have in America. We have kind of decided, you know, people broadly in all sorts of different kinds of communities have decided that uh, building new development near them in a neighborhood is, is a bad thing. Uh, and that that is, or, or that it's something that, that it, they should have so much control over that it proceeds at a snail's pace. I think that's kind of the predominant sociology in America. And I think that sociology is what has to change. You know, California could build a ton of housing right now if it wanted to. There's nothing stopping any local government from erecting a ton of housing. And if you go to the urban fringe, you'll see all sorts of communities that are building all sorts of housing everywhere. Uh, you even go to certain neighborhoods of San Francisco where they're building, you know, all kinds of housing in Soma, right? So, so there's nothing like preventing cities from building a ton of housing. It's just they don't really want to. So to some extent, state law is trying to uh, almost like prevent them from stopping things, right? But, but if people wanted to affirmatively start building things, there's no law preventing that. Um, I mean, I guess you could argue CEQA and stuff like that. Uh, which is the California Environmental Quality Act makes it harder. And that's true. But if people were really determined to build more housing, they could do it. So I think what was significant to me about the Yimby NIMBY thing is that amongst kind of younger people, when I say younger, I mean, I really mean like under 40, uh, they, they, they've kind of decided that, that this kind of attitude of more housing is, is more, is kind of become their ethos. And I think that as that ethos takes hold, you will start to see the politics change. And I think that may long-term be more important than the policy. I actually went into the book thinking the opposite, but at some level, I just kind of walked away with it. It's like, you know, if every single time someone proposes a new development uh, in a particular city or on a particular block, everyone goes up in arms about it, you can't really stop that. And so I think that over time, that, that piece of it has to change. And it will be interesting to see how that plays out. So what will happen in Sacramento this year? I'm sure they'll pass something. But I think at some level, uh, the housing crisis is going to get worse because people are going to build less housing because bank loans are going to be behind and stuff like that. Now, I should also add, under the surface, a lot of little things have happened over the past few years. None of them has been the big SB 50, which was this big law that Senator Scott Wiener passed that would have essentially rezoned uh, the major metro areas of California and made it much easier to build apartments in low-density neighborhoods and around transit. Okay, all those big sort of gigantic audacious things have generally failed. But in the meantime, we've passed a number of these called so-called accessory dwelling unit bills. Now, if people really go build accessory dwelling units or ADUs at, at the level that they're now permitted to by state law, you could imagine certain neighborhoods like mine, I live in a lower density neighborhood of Oakland called Rockridge, you could imagine it having a doubling or even tripling of density. So. At some level, these smaller things have to start appearing and they have to start like working. I don't think that's going to solve the housing problem, but I do think it'll be interesting to see if people take that up, meaning that these laws for things like ADUs and all that have been totally liberalized. Do we start to see like an ADU building boom? 
Um, do we actually start to see neighborhoods that have, let's say, 10 homes in them have 20, 30 units, um, you know, in other backyards? It'd be interesting to see how that plays out, because if people don't start doing that, then maybe we should reassess what the problems are. Connor, thanks so much for your time and your insights today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleased by the book. <laughs> I was, I'm just going to give a little pitch right now. Once again, you can read Connor Doherty's reporting in the New York Times and his new book, once again, Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. In it, he follows a struggling math teacher who wants to end single-family housing neighborhoods, a teenager who organizes her apartment complex to fight rent raises, and a nun who amasses a multi-million dollar portfolio of affordable homes. And there's a lot more than that. To hear more episodes of the Affordable Housing Podcast, please visit us at edenhousing.org. Wow.